truth is the authority. All right, first thing, bring your A game because I'll take nothing less. We don't need more regulations. We need far less of that. We're going to have an open and honest discussion, but the numbers are what matter. The facts matter. Forget about the Republicans and the Democrats for a minute. Let's talk about the people. I've lived the American dream, and I want so many more people to be able to live the American dream. My show is what it says. It's common sense. We've jettisoned political correctness. It's principles and policies that work for everybody. I just want to talk about how to fix this country. The David Webb Show. Biden promising relentless diplomacy to our skeptical allies around the world. One headline from yesterday at the United Nations, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping reassure United Nations as U.S.-China rivalry intensifies. Uh, vacuous platitudes won't fix a tattered global image. And, of course, the reality playing out still in Afghanistan, which is on the world stage, not just here in the United States. Colonel Dan Davis, our retired senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, back to help me work through all of this. Uh, Colonel, I would say I'm surprised, but I would be lying no surprise in the global approach speech by President Biden yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it really was just kind of what you might expect. I frankly found that it was filled with lots of uh, cliches and platitudes, almost like it was just a standard run of the mill uh, speech that was uh, you know you would expect to see on the at the UN. Didn't really include anything new. Um, so in, in a certain sense, it's I think that he's trying to project, you know, return to, quote, normalcy, whatever that actually means. But I, I think that that's why he was why he didn't take a, a hard approach uh, and at least not directly, uh, though he did take some indirect swaps at China and, and, and both Russia at some points. But uh, uh, for a lot of people, it was it was kind of uh, almost boring. <laughs> you know, let, let's do what you and I and often do look at the other perspective right the perspective let's start with our allies uh this speech yesterday you know when, when you look at these un speeches a, a well-delivered speech as it as it has been done in the past by other presidents sets a standard of where the u.s stands on our fundamental values and our our foreign policy doctrine uh you know on helping those around the world who want to do better for themselves not just to be you know interfering in in a sense from our allies perspective those that would expect the support of the united states whether it be a nato ally or not how do you think they saw this yesterday well you know it, it's kind of a mixed bag <clears throat> pardon me it's kind of a mixed bag right now uh, not just because of the speech, but across uh, around a lot of things that have been happening here lately. Uh, I mean, you got to start with this situation in Afghanistan. Uh, while I have actually spoken with a number of our uh, allies uh, from other governments, and all of them that I've talked to so far agreed that the, the mission needed to end. They just uh, are was a little disappointed in, in the way that it was conducted. 
so in, in the general sense, they're with us on that, but they don't like how it happened, especially some of the NATO allies that were physically part of troops on the ground. They didn't like how it was handled. Then you have the issue in, uh, in Australia with the, sub, the nuclear sub-deal, which made uh, the UK and Australia very happy and, you know, infuriated Paris. Uh, so, you know, you have that dynamic going on there, too. And, of course, that was directly uh, related to uh, security against China in the, the uh, Pacific, especially in the East, uh, South and East China Seas out there. Uh, so many of our allies say, OK, on the things that we see that matter, the things that are genuinely of, of an existential threat or uh, are, uh, things that we both care about a lot, I think that they can see that we're still you know, going to maintain our commitments, whether that's Article 5 in NATO, uh, whether that's with our allies in the uh, Pacific area regarding China. So I think on things that matter, I think they see that we're, uh, we're still going to be there. Let me ask you a little bit of a... What should I, how should I put this Machiavellian question here, Colonel? It's been a curious situation for me with this agreement with Australia and your points about a counter to China, right, in, in those waters. Uh, looking ahead, France comes back. China has a, an immense amount of influence with France between their direct interactions bilaterally and other interactions trilaterally or otherwise in the Middle East. So did China respond here via France? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Did China respond what? Via France. Was France the mouthpiece on this? Uh. You know, I, I really don't think so. I, I think this was genuine because, I mean, you know, it was the largest defense contract in, in France's history, and they were super angry about losing that uh, about losing that business. And certainly China was, was going to be cheering that on all day long. Uh, but it just it does kind of underscore that, hey, you know, we're going to take the, the actions that are in the best interest of the United States. I, I personally think that we could and should have handled that better. Uh, diplomatically, because I'm sure we wouldn't like it if somebody undercut a deal we had, uh, you know, that was already signed. Uh, but the fact is that this is going to certainly, this is something that China really does concern them because uh, under the, the subsurface warfare element of our security is, is our absolute biggest strength. And by adding something to Australia, who also has very strained relations with China, is something they definitely don't like. Yeah. Fair point. And it's, you know, again, that underwater capability, that subsurface capability is the one thing China has not been able to effectively counter. They've tried in the past uh, through global approaches, including, you know, trans, you know, asking for some transponder sharing, monitoring capabilities. So that's important. Uh, this idea yesterday about the rivalry between the U.S. and China. Is it intensifying? Is it growing because of where we were even before Biden? What's its status? Yeah, that, it, it, it is worrying me a little. I, I won't lie, um, because it has been. It actually, you know, you got to go all the way back to the Obama administration with the so-called pivot to Asia uh, when we started taking a much more aggressive uh, both uh, air patrols and and uh, so-called freedom of operation, freedom of navigation operations around the Chinese waters, and that continued on through the Trump administration, and it has not slowed down any under the Biden. And while I'm a big advocate of 
competing very aggressively uh, with China for the benefit of the United States. We got to be real careful that we don't push too hard or go too far to to potentially set up a situation to where we could face the very com uh, you know war threat that we must avoid at all costs because our primary objective has to be uh, the avoiding war with China and maximizing economic opportunities for the United States and we just can't go down a, a road that could lead to war unnecessarily it is not necessary for our security. We can't risk that because then it could throw everything else that we care about, uh, you know, upside down. The Chinese Communist Party has been in a cold war with those who they don't who don't agree with them or can't be used effectively for certainly the last 50 years. But since the founding under Mao Zedong, they use economic power well. Here we have a Biden administration promising to get rid of far fossil fuels and, and help destroy our energy infrastructure, while China's foreign investment in coal is far beyond ours in nations, smaller nations, larger nations. Uh, they are investing in coal. They're buying coal from the United States. They're building and opening plants at a faster pace. You know, how do you reconcile the two, or is it just that it's never going to be reconciled, and, and this is just part of the political narrative? Because Biden says well, do it, this, the left says do this, and China doesn't do this. Well, China's China's got a very... Uh troubling energy situation for them i'm talking about they they have to uh do whatever they can to diversify because they see that that fossil fuels regardless of what anybody wants to do uh there's you know with the with the growing demand globally there's just not enough to go around to everybody or there may not be at some point uh so they're actually doing a whole lot with with green and, and uh, especially solar power battery power, et cetera. So they're kind of going in multi-directions, but they don't have the luxury of just going all the way. So they do have, you know, possibilities with coal and they have less concerns about using coal than, than most nations because really all they care about is being able to power their economic engine, as you just pointed out, because that is their primary tool and method uh, to engage with the world. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, that's that's troubling because they do, you know, are going all over the place. I mean, Africa South America, certainly all throughout Europe and the, and the Middle East. And, you know, I think it's all, and all on us to say, hey, we're going to outcompete you. We're, we're going to beat you in the economics field, which benefits our country. And I'm all for that. Let's, let's in, engage all day long in the economic uh, sphere and outcompete China and, and beat them at their own game. Yeah, I you know, maybe I'm just becoming too much of a skeptic in my old age, Colonel. But, uh, you know, yesterday, you know, the goals of carbon neutrality, uh, China, they will do it by 2060. Uh, that's 10 years after we will do it, according to the Biden administration. You know, and, and China, to me, is just sitting there going, yeah, go ahead, go for that. Probably not really going to happen. But if you do it, we'll take 10 years and I'm going to trust the Chinese Communist Party, with the reality you just outlined. I guess I'm just not seeing it here. I don't know. Well, I I don't trust China for anything. In fact, well, I guess it's not true. I trust China to do what's, what they think is in their best interest, regardless of what it does to anybody else. And so I assume there's self-interest in that. 
Uh, and you know, we have our self interest, and I'm 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 a I'm a proponent of that as well. I'm I want to cooperate with with other nations and and you know around the world, and I think that there's room where we need to cooperate with China in certain areas, uh, so that we keep the competition healthy and and positive, as opposed to potentially leading to a military clash. Uh, but I'm also not opposed at all to pushing back hard where where that's necessary. Yeah, the question is the nature of the pushback, and I don't see this administration deploying the instruments of national power the way they were during the Trump administration, especially on the economic, which, you know, if you look at Biden saying military is a tool of last resort when referring to China in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, then one of the tools of first resort is our economic power, the interdependence and our ability uh, to be a more robust economy uh, and also to divest of China, which we see happening with Vietnam, bring, ramping up capacity and more is, um, to me, something they won't do. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, we also have to admit it's, it's a really hard balancing act to find because the, the, the trade between the U.S. and, and China is so substantial and, and just, you know, a massive amount. And it's not in our interest, I don't think, to completely divest. I, I think it is in our interest to diversify. And I'm, uh, you know, a big supporter of this with Vietnam and, and several others. Uh, but I just don't think that we can literally separate the two. I, I just don't think there's room for that. It would, it would just, there's just too many obstacles that have to overcome and too much benefit for us to keep going down this way. So I want to keep all the advantages we have, but also add advantages in other areas. Yeah, the problem is we, and this isn't just limited to the Biden administration, don't exercise, we don't carry out some of the areas that are important to protect in our national interests, our sovereign interests. We don't use the CFIUS process. We, we allow for so many holes. It's like a sieve. China continues to expand their influence in this country while controlling any influence in theirs or simply blocking it. So that's out of balance. If that stays out of balance and we don't use other tools at our disposal, then we don't get to that point where there are areas of cooperation that are mutually beneficial. And at the same time, let's be realistic, communism doesn't want, and the Chinese Communist Party and how Xi, now president for life, sees himself, does not want to just have a strong American. America. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think that's that's definitely clear. They they would love to harm us in any way they can, at least knock us down a notch or two. Because the truth is, they need us too. They can't they can't have their economy can't even come close to maintaining the the growth level that it has that it needs without the American consumer, without the American buyers of, of taking their whether services or products. So it's it's a tough game that both sides have to play but you, you're 100 right there that the communist regime is going to significantly limit our ability to influence inside their country and the nature of our democratic freedoms is that there's an opportunity that china has in there that uh and honestly that's a that's a tough one to call because we don't want to turn like china and you know keep them out or keep them down specifically while we don't do that to anybody else because that's that's that challenges the whole fabric of, of the freedoms that we espouse others to have. So I, I, I don't see an easy answer on that one. And it's 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 probably not in their favor right now. I think you're right. 
Colonel, you keep a close eye on uh, Taiwan as well. We've discussed it in the past and wasn't on our to-do list, as I like to say today. But, uh, you know, this Taiwan situation, uh, where is it now? Uh, I think that's another area we should stand strong. Where are we with Taiwan and China and their uh, one nation policy? Yeah, it's really hard to talk about anything with China without uh, eventually landing on the Taiwan issue because that is uh, such an emotional uh, issue with China, and, and it is you know very strong with the United States too because of our uh, long-term relationship with Taiwan. What we have to find a best way to do is to uh, balance out the need to continue our relationship with with Taiwan to. Uh, to deter China from using the military option against Taiwan, but without committing ourselves to potentially engaging in a, a nuclear exchange or, or even a conventional war with China would be catastrophic to the United States, far worse than what would happen, say, if, if China ever succeeded in taking Taiwan. As bad as that would be, that is not anywhere near as bad as us being, you know, having our ships sunk and our planes knocked out of the air and possibly, God forbid, a nuclear exchange, which would be catastrophic beyond compare. So it's really hard because China has placed so much uh, importance, even among their their ruling elite, on eventual reunification with Taiwan. Uh, and it is so much more important to them that they're willing to sacrifice and pay a lot to get that. And and it's not that important to the United States. It's not that important to our, our people, for sure. Uh, and we just have to be willing to say that we're not going to sacrifice, you know, American cities or fleets of ships or planes for Taiwan. And I, I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but I, that's that's where I think is the best interest of our country. Last one. Exit question. <laughs> when our multiple conversations, <laughs> you're used to this. We we go we try to get as much in as possible. Uh, Japan, Japan, Taiwan, China. How do you see it? Yeah, that's that's actually on a bit of an uptake as well, or an uptake. Uh, Japan actually, you know, said that they have a red line. That they have said that if China moves on Taiwan, that they will consider that an existential threat, and that they would be willing to go to war. And they're actually increasing their military. They're starting to build additional capability to specifically handle that situation. And for I think the first time in 30 years, they have conducted some uh, exercises recently that are clearly directed towards China to show that they could they could handle this. Uh, and so Japan, it, it, for the most, really since, since in my adult lifetime, uh, has taken a much more provocative step towards China. And that's, uh, and that's something that China has to weigh in because it's not an automatic that it, a, China, a war between the U.S. and China over Taiwan would only include the U.S. and China, but they may have faced South Korea, possibly Australia now, uh, Japan. So that actually increases the, the risk to China of moving on that. So that actually is a pretty good deterrent effect, I think. Yeah. What's that uh, all war is deception? Uh, exit question part two, quick one, uh, Colonel Davis. Should we help Japan increase their capability and their training, which is important to this? Obviously, we have bases there. We have a long-running relationship but should we increase that while at the same time increasing Australia's capability? I, I, I think that anything that, that improves the 
the self-defense capabilities of, of our allies, especially our wealthy allies that can afford it, I'm all for. Because I don't think that we should just literally forever, you know, be one of the first resources that anybody uses if they have to go to war. If Japan and Australia are more capable of defending themselves, that's good for America. All right. A lot in there for people to chew on in the audience. Colonel Davis, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Always my pleasure. Thanks, David. Colonel Dan Davis, senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, their website, defensepriorities.org. I'll be right back. 